I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful today for your magnificent power, splendor. God, you're awesome and we praise you. We lift you up and we exalt you in our hearts. Lord, we have gathered in this place to give you glory, which is due your name. Lord, to behold your beautiful face. God, to behold your wonderful character. Lord, to draw nearer and nearer unto you. We thank you, Lord, for this great privilege that we have, that we might know the living and the true God. And we thank you for the grace that has been given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that your power is at work within us. And so we ask you, Lord, for strength. God, that we might have strength to work out our salvation, Lord. And Lord, that with reverence, with fear, God, trembling at your word. We ask, Father, that you would give us contrite hearts, brokenness, O oh God, in our spirit, mourning over our sin. And God, we, we ask that you would just continue to do your good work of conforming us into your image. We thank you so much for these privilege, these privileges, Lord. They are awesome and wonderful. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to worship you and to freely proclaim your word without fear of persecution. God, this is a great privilege, and we are very grateful for it. We thank you so much for all that you are to us and all that you are doing among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. There's a few more folks coming in. Today we're going to be on page number 23. And uh, Lord willing, we might make it to page number 25. So uh, if you don't have any of those, there's a few right up here on the table. Okay, so we are uh, back in our ongoing study of the book of Ephesians. And last week we, we got through chapter 4 and verse 1. And uh, today we're going to take up at verse 2 and following. And I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, so that we can get the context here of, of uh, what we're studying. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, 
so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen? And so as we've been saying, you know, that uh, the, the book of Ephesians makes a real transition here from chapters 1 through 3 into chapters 4 through 6. And, and what's taking place is he's going from a, a doctrinal discussion of spiritual realities into practical instruction about how those realities are to be lived out. So he's going to talk very practically about how we apply these things to our life and how we implement them in our life. What do we physically need to do in response to all of this doctrinal truth he's been given us of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And so he's beginning that whole practical discussion and he begins in chapter 4 verse 1 by saying, Therefore... And I pointed out last week that that, therefore, was there referring to the entire former chapters of 1 through 3. And Paul has built this great discussion about salvation, uh, what it is, how it came to be, how it came to be individually as individual Christians, how it came to be corporately as a corporate body of Christians, both Jew and Gentile. And he's gone into this great discussion about all of the Riches that we have being in Christ. And all of that was a mystery that God had revealed, that he had kept uh, hidden for long ages past, but now had finally revealed these things through the Lord Jesus and through the preaching of the gospel. And that through the preaching of that gospel, this corporate body of the church, which he has been discussing, has come to pass, and how all of this is happening by the predestined counsel of God's own purpose and will. And, and uh, so all of those truths that we discussed in those first three chapters here, Paul's going to begin to tell us how we ought to live in response to those things, what we ought to do. And, of course, you know, he uses the word here, walk. And he says, I beseech you that you walk worthy and in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And, and so he uses the term walk to... to to, to practically explain how we live, okay? The, the, the word is properly translated walk, but it is, he does not mean physically walking down the street. He physically means, I'm sorry, he, he, he means uh, to say how we live. So when he uses the term walk, he's talking about how we live. He says, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, who am in chains for the gospel... Beseech you Christians in Ephesus who are free to walk in a manner worthy or to live in a manner worthy of what? 
of the calling by which you have been called. And we talked about that last week at great length, and, and I really expounded on the term calling. Uh, you know, it, it's used many, many different times in many different ways in the New Testament, and uh, we talked about that at length. That, that's something that uh, I think we really need to understand, because this term calling, the term call, called, calling, is a term that is used uniquely of Christians to describe the fact that they have been called by God who is the caller, right? And so it's kind of a term that describes us. And I even told you about the term church. Can anybody remember what we learned about the term church last week? What is the meaning of the term church? How is it derived, uh, Joe? Okay. Right. Ekklesia is the Greek word for church, which literally means the called out ones. And Terry explained to us that that word ekklesia comes from two words, right? Uh, which is the words, um, I'm sorry? Ek means out. Ek means out. And, and lasia means uh, uh, to call. So we get the word church, and the, the very word church literally means in the Greek, the called out ones. Okay? Thus the emphasis that I'm placing here on the word call, okay? But really that emphasis is placed by the Holy Spirit right here in this chapter. He uses the words twice, just in verse 1, by saying, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All right? And he, he goes on further at, at further places in, the, in this chapter and also in the book to use the term again. And if you look in the writings of Paul, you, you see this all over the place. We looked last week at Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30, right? For um, God works in all things for the good of those who love him who are the called according to his purpose, right? And all those whom he called, he also predestined, and those he predestined, these he also justified, and all those he justified, these he also glorified, right? And, and so you have this term, called, that's used to describe Christians. And that, that's very important, certainly in the context of Ephesians, right? Certainly in context of the things that we learned in chapter 1, where all of this, we have been chosen in him uh, from before the foundation of the world, right? And we've been adopted into his family. And, of course, last week we talked about this calling and that, that, that process of divine election happens by the calling of God. And that when God calls somebody, that calling is effectual unto salvation. It carries with it the effect of salvation. Um, and so if you want to understand that a little more in detail and you weren't here last week, please grab the tape. <laughs> or if you'd like, I'd be happy to discuss that off, offline with, with anyone. So then, in moving on here, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and this morning we're going to pick up at verse 2, where he says there, he's, he's discussing this idea of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, right? And he says here how we do that. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Now, you know, I was saying last week, up until now, 
Paul has not told us to do anything. We, we have looked at three chapters of this whole book, and Paul has not one time told us to do anything. But now he gets very practical, and he begins to discuss what we ought to do, how we ought to respond, how we should apply or implement these things in our life. And so he says, walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, he says, and here's how you do it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Now, I want to remind you of this thing where I talked about chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 as a whole, and how it can be broken into two parts. And, and the, the first part of, of Ephesians 4 discusses our unity and maturity, and that goes through verses 16. And then in verses um, 17 through the end of the chapter, he begins a, dis, uh, a discussion about the war between the spirit and the flesh. And he talks about the old man and the new man. And he describes what the old man was like and what our former manner of life was like very practically. And then he, he begins to enter into a discussion about what our new life should be like very practically. If you will, looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, I, I say then and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. How do the Gentiles walk, Paul? In the futility of, the, of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. Right? He's saying, don't be like that old Gentile man anymore, he says. But instead, he says, verse uh, 22 that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted. He says, but, he says, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, created in true righteousness and holiness of the truth. And, and he goes on, he begins to describe what that's like. He says, he says, be angry and do not sin. He who steals must steal no longer. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And he's beginning to give us this very practical instruction about what the new man is like. Okay, so remember that. Chapter 4 as a whole is kind of broken into these two parts. And the first part discusses our unity and our maturity. And here he is right here in the text of verse 2, launching off into this idea of unity. Okay? So here we have a discussion of Christian unity. And you can see this in verses 2 through verses 6. Very, very circumspectly. He's going to describe what that unity is like. And he's going to build on it in the following verses. So, but what he says here is, he begins to describe how we, how we walk in this worthy manner. And the first thing he does is he begins to point to the character of Christ and the character of God. Because, you see, he is the one who has called us, right? And we are to walk in a manner worthy of what? Of the calling we received, which is to say that we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the one who called us, right? And so he's going to begin to describe here what God is like. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Right? Here are Christian virtues to be sought after and cherished. In these we see the perfect character of Christ, 
who was humble and gentle and patiently forbearing in love. What a beautiful expression to describe God's character. But here, now, we Christians are to possess and exercise the very character of God. This would be living in a manner worthy of God, to live like Him and walk as He walked. Okay? So Paul's going to begin to say, I want you to walk in this worthy manner, and here's what it looks like. With humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And I, I quoted there 1 John 2.6, where John, John says to us, The one who says he abides in him, that is Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Right? Just like Paul says. John and Paul are saying the same thing. Paul says, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. To, to walk in a manner worthy of the one who has called you. Right? And John says, if you say you are in him, you ought to walk as he walked. You ought to do what? Live as he lived. Do what he does. Say what he says. Go where he goes. Right? We are to imitate Christ. And, of course, Paul's going to tell us that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says there, be imitators of God. And so here he's discussing how we are walking in this worthy manner. Here, then, is how we live. This is to be our attitude and character. And in this context, how we are to behave toward one another. You know, it's interesting. When Paul begins to tell us what we ought to do, the first thing he says is how we ought to be. Because you can't really do something that is consistent with what is not your true nature inside. If you do, it will only be a what? A facade, a mask. It won't be real, will it? So Paul says, if you're going to walk in a worthy manner, first you must be what? Humble. Now, humble isn't something you do. Humble is something that you are. It's an inner virtue. It's an inner character, which really deals with your attitude or your perspective of, of, of how you relate to others and to the world and to God. Amen? And Paul says, this is how you ought to be. You ought to be humble. You ought to, uh, you ought to with all humility and what? Gentleness. Gentleness isn't something you do. Gentleness is something that you are. It's the essence of your behavior. Right? It's gentle. And again, patience, if you will, is not something you do. Patient is something that you are. Right? Forbearing. Patient and forbearing in what? In love. Right? In selfless uh, sacrifice. Right? What a, what a gorgeous, what a beautiful picture of, of Christ to use these words to describe what he is like. Humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance to one another in love. Amen? And then if we are his people, how ought we to be? We ought to be humble. We ought to be gentle. We ought to be patient. We ought to show forbearing love to one another. Amen? Oh, how Jesus has shown each one of us forbearing love. Amen? Amen? 
You ever get tired and frustrated with certain people that you live with <laughs> and that you work with and that you, you experience every day? <laughs> Can you imagine how patient and forbearing Christ has been with us as we have been being conformed into his image and all of the struggles and the failures that we've had and how many times we have brought shame to his name and how many times that we haven't done these very things which he's told us so clearly to do and even given us the power of his indwelling spirit to accomplish them. Right? Imagine how forbearing Christ has been. So then we have an example of how forbearing we are to be. To who? To one another in love. Amen? Because now we're talking about what? We're talking about Christian unity within the body of Christ. And we're looking specifically about how we are to behave toward one another by being this way inside our hearts. Humble and patient and gentle and forbearing in love. Amen? And friends, if everybody's humble and gentle and patient and forbearing in love, we're not going to have much strife, are we? We're going to have people tripping over one another, looking for ways to serve and care for one another. Amen? I get a picture of heaven when I think about the fulfillment of this command. What will the home of righteousness be like? Where the Prince of Peace rules. Amen? Well, hopefully we get a picture of that in the church. Amen? And if not, we ought to be striving to see that picture in ourselves. Amen? We ought to walk in a manner worthy. So he says then, in all humility. Okay? So I wrote a little definition of humility here. Humility is lowliness of mind, bowed down, submissive, (coughs) meek, esteeming others more highly than itself. It does not demand undue self-depreciation, but rather lowliness of self-estimation and freedom from vanity and self-exalting pride. Humility. Humility esteems others more highly than itself. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. Amen? And friends, let me tell you, this is the state of unity in the church. When everybody begins to esteem one another more highly than themselves, you then have the infrastructure for peace and for unity. Because everybody sees everybody else as as so much more important than themselves. And they're giving themselves to reach out and minister and serve one another. (coughs) Amen? That's what it ought to be like in the body of Christ. But it all starts with this inner attitude and virtue we call humility. (coughs) Humility. Humility. To me, it is this greatest virtue of God to me for a, for a human to begin to possess is humility. And I say that because I believe that pride is the root of all sin. 
And I believe that humility is the opposite of pride. Okay? You know, when when uh, Satan was in heaven, and it says iniquity was found in his heart, right? What was he saying? He said, I will exalt myself above the most high. Right? And he says the five I wills there. I will do this. And I will do that. And I will be the captain of my own ship. Right? And he is a picture of pride. And I like how Spurgeon describes pride. He says it is the mother of hell. It is that thing which conceived the fires of hell. Because when pride was first found in the heart of Lucifer, from that sprung every form of sin and all kinds of evil. So then, what is the chief virtue of the Christian which counteracts that pride? It's humility. Humility doesn't say, I will, I am, right? Humility says, no, no, you, you, you do that. No, no, you are that. I, I'm just a lowly servant. To be humble is to make oneself low. To see others as more important than yourself. Amen? Now that's not easy to do, is it? Flesh don't like that one bit, does it? There's a great war inside every one of our hearts. Because, you know, the sinful nature is self-preserving. It seeks its own. It's not like love, which does not seek its own. Right? It's like pride, which does seek its own. And so this humility is in contrast to that pride. And I, I, I put this other thing, which I've, I've been considering lately. That humility is the wellspring from which all other virtues flow. Can, can you be truly loving if you're not humble? Well, the Bible says love is not proud. It's not arrogant. Right? Those are opposites of humility. Therefore, if one is truly loving, he must first be truly humble. Amen? He must be looking out to the interest of others, not to the interest of himself. Amen? Humility. Humility. It's a profound virtue. I've been looking all through the Bible for these places where humility is described. And it's interesting how the more you look, it's like digging, it's like mining for jewels. The more you look, the more you find. And there's all these gorgeous, beautiful ways that the, the virtue of humility is described in the Bible. But I want to tell you it's something to be sought after. It's a virtue to be cherished. If in your prayer life you get down on your knees and you can't think about what to pray, pray this. God, make me humble. And begin to love humility so much that even if God has to humiliate you to make you humble, then so be it. Amen? Sometimes that's exactly what it takes. It's kind of like, Open mouth, insert foot. 
right? Sometimes you have to be humiliated before you're kind of humble about your circumstance. Amen? Anybody want to comment on humility? Grant? When you're speaking about being humble right here in the context of within the realm of believers, within the realm of the church, okay? And that's something that I struggle with, not to be humble within the realm of, of believers, but to be humble within the realm of the world. Mm-hmm. And am I right in thinking that that's what Paul is speaking of here, his unity within the church? He is. He is most certainly, and we can see that right in the context, right? Uh, if we look at verse 2, and how do we know that? Because right in the context, he says, With all humility, gentleness, and patience, showing forbearance to who? One to one another in love, right? So, now that's not to say that we're not to be humble with those in the world in regard to your comment, right? Right. But in, in, in this context, he is specifically speaking about unity within the church. And, of course, if you look at the broader context, we're looking at unity within the church, which would, again, affirm the idea that you're talking about. Here, this, this humility is to be uh, with one another. Gene, were you going to comment? Yeah, I was going to say, you started off by saying it's what you are. What you are doesn't change when you are the door of the church or amongst the world. Amen. So if that, if that humility is truly an inner virtue of yourself, which, which quite frankly, if you're a Christian, it is. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit lives within you, and your nature is now the nature of God. Your new nature is the new nature of God, which He has implanted His life within your soul. So down inside you somewhere, Christian, is some humility. Amen? And this is what Paul is calling us to strive to live like, to, to live in a humble way with one another, right? And, of course, if, like Gene said, if that, if that is what we are, then that's not going to change when we begin to relate to other people other than just Christians. <coughs> Amen? But certainly, <laughs> there's a lot of people in the world that are a lot harder to deal with than a lot of Christians. Amen? Yes, there are people that are very difficult to deal with. Why? Because they don't have a love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what's my responsibility supposed to be there? Mm-hmm. To love in, in all aspects? Mm-hmm. Well, well, that can be difficult depending right. on the situation right. that you're in. But certainly the New Testament has dealt with that <coughs> comprehensively, right? So, um, but, you know, how, how would Jesus deal with them? What, what would Christ be like in that situation? And what, how would the scripture specifically speak to the situation at hand? Right? And that's how we got to begin to think. When we go out there in the world and we begin to face the situations of life, we need to be thinking biblically. We need, when we find ourselves in those difficult situations where we're liable to lose the character of Christ and, and begin to act in the flesh, right? we need to know what the Bible says about how we are to behave. We need to cognitively recognize the situation that we're in and consider before we open our mouths and before we we respond out of emotion to to let the Spirit of God dominate our character and let the Spirit of God dominate our words and our thinking 
right? But it all, it all happens when the Word of God lives resident inside your mind and inside your heart so that you, you cognitively know with your mind what is the right response. Then you seek God for His power to do it. Amen? Uh, Carlos? Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But man himself uh, uh, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in likeness of a man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus is our example. Amen. He was crucified by the world because of sin. Mm-hmm. And I... And even when we're in the world, we have to realize that Jesus died and humbled himself by the hands of man himself. So we have to, and like I said, it is hard when we're in the workplace Mm -hmm. because I think there's uh, peer pressure Mm -hmm. sometimes. We kind of want to go along with the program because we don't want to stand out that way. Mm-hmm. But if we love Jesus, hopefully he'll give us the strength. Because he died and he humbled himself. So God himself can humble himself. Amen. Hopefully we can ask for the strength to humble ourselves. Mm-hmm. Charlotte, you were going to comment? Yeah, I just, in listening to the scriptures and hearing the words of Christ and the words of Paul, they're very bold. I mean, it's not like they were walking around with their heads down and their eyes to the ground. I mean, they were they were humble because they put their trust in Christ. They put their foundation of their words of what they were saying. Mm-hmm. It's their focus of, that their boldness came from the truth mm-hmm. and not from pride. And I think that's that's where I struggle in that in being bold, mm-hmm. you, you get prideful rather than... You can. Yeah. You can get prideful in being bold, right? But your, your exhortation here is to be bold like they were, yet being humble, right? And I think that's a struggle for all of us. Dave? Yeah, I think it comes down to, like, what do we fear the most? I mean, do we fear God and be disobedient to God, or do we fear what the man or the people are going to think about us, you know, in that particular situation? Amen. Well, you know, it just comes to a simple question. Because I think pride is just our defense mechanism to defend our honor. Because we worry about what the other person thinks of us, whether the other person is going to walk all over us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. We're motivated to defend ourselves because we are prideful, because we are proud, right? Because we think, oh, they're being critical of me. Oh, 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 they've offended me, right? And and we, they can't talk about me like that, right? And and so then we then defend ourselves, and and that that is uh, evil living within mm-hmm. us. When we consider to defend ourselves because we have esteemed ourselves so highly that no one can be critical of ourselves. Amen? Maybe we ought to stop for a moment and think now. Maybe there's some truth. Or maybe we ought to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, why would that person say that about me? What is it that I do that causes them to perceive me to be that way? And first look inwardly at ourselves to see if these things be true. Amen? Then maybe next time we won't be so quick to defend ourselves. Right? Jesus went to the cross, friends, and he didn't defend himself. And believe me, he had a lot to defend because he was the perfect, blameless Lamb of God. But 1 Peter 2 says, 
that we were called to follow after Christ, who was our example, who when they hurled insults at him, he did not revile, and he made no threats. Instead, he went like a lamb, right, to the cross. And so you see the humility of Christ before Pilate and Herod, that fox. And Jesus could have spoken and toasted Herod right there on the scene. But yet he let him speak his boastful, arrogant words. And he let those Roman guards beat him and toy with him and mock him and shame him and spit on him because he had the purpose of the Father fixed in his mind. And Isaiah said he set his face like a flint to be obedient to the will of God. And he humbled himself, like Carlos told us in Ephesians, and became obedient to death like a servant. Amen? Now, friends, that is the example of how we are to treat one another. You know, and Peter says, you, and you, know, you know this, you know, you, you know this. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3, 1, ladies. Anybody remember that? Wives... Likewise, be what? Submissive to your own husbands, right? Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3, 7. And you, husbands, likewise, right? Live with your wives in an understanding way, right? Likewise what, husbands? Likewise what, wives? Like Jesus, who when he was uh, uh, insulted did not revile and he didn't make any threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and he went like a lamb to the cross. That's how we treat one another. An example of, of the cross of Christ. That's why, why we say here that we value the cross because the cross is how we live as Christians. Amen? When you, how, what Christ did you follow when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Whichever wife loses herself, her life, to be submissive to her own husband, she is one who follows after Christ. Whichever husband would lose his life to live with his wife in an understanding way and to serve her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is a husband that follows Christ. Amen? Amen. And when we are patient and gentle and forbear with one another in love, in the body of Christ, we are they who follow Christ. We do that out of humility because we esteem others more highly than ourselves. Amen? That's who we are. That's what the Bible says. Amen? Jerry? Uh, how about the time that uh, the Apostle Paul used his rights as a uh, Roman citizen? How does that kind of fit into our discussion? Mm-hmm. So, you know, practically he was being railroaded, if you will. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, wrongfully accused mm-hmm. uh, so that he uh, 
for the lack of a better term, used his rights as being a, a, a Roman citizen mm-hmm. to get a fair trial, mm-hmm. or at least at least to have the uh, the established government, the powers, mm-hmm. uh, reevaluate the situation based on his citizenship. Mm-hmm. Two things I would say about that. One is he did that by the sovereign will of God, who had when when he had called Paul had said. This is my chosen instrument to do what? To bear my name before the Gentiles, right? And another had prophesied, I think it was Agabus, and please forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe it was Agabus who said um, that Paul was to go to Rome specifically and testify. I could be wrong. Maybe that was not Agabus. But but somewhere there in, in that middle section of Acts, there is a prophecy that Paul is to go to Rome and to testify. And that uh, thing that happened to Paul, whereby he demanded his rights as a Roman citizen so that the Jews would not kill him, that became the agency of him going before Caesar to testify of the gospel. And so in, in the sovereign will of God, that was played out. But I would ask this question. Did Paul sin by demanding his rights? And, and, um, and, and as I look at that, I think not. I think not. He had the right by the governing authorities to make that appeal, right? Versus somebody like Stephen, a martyr who had no such right to appeal to. He was basically being stoned by his own governing authorities. And, and uh, uh, so, you know, there's, you know, I kind of look at Paul saying, wait a minute, don't kill me. <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen, right? And kind of... Uh, um, using that as a way out of, of, of being stoned to death there, uh, whereas, you know, Stephen didn't have that same right. Gene, you were going to comment. I was going to say it wasn't really a sense of pride or anything for self that he said it. It was no. a statement of fact. Mm-hmm. It didn't have any other element. But the point that I was trying to make is at times you may be wrongfully accused of something, mm-hmm. and I think, I don't think the Bible is teaching be a, sacrificial lamb because he should be a sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul certainly could have rolled over and said, okay, well, just kill me already. Okay? Yeah. And he did not necessarily do that. True. And and what I'm trying to get at is it does take some wisdom to determine when to roll over, if you mm-hmm. will, Amen. and when to actually use the, and I don't want to say rights, or the because the, 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 everyone is right happy these days, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I think that you, you you do have to have some wisdom about being able to stand up for yourself because you're wrongfully accused. Mm-hmm. And God has put us in a time period, a, a period of time where we do have certain freedoms and certain rights within our country mm-hmm. to defend yourself if you are wrongfully accused for for whatever, like in the workplace. Amen. Amen. Like and certainly there is wisdom that needs to be exercised right. there. We're not saying you, you roll right. over and die in every situation you ever find yourself in universally, right? right? I got That's about I think, three other hands here. Okay. I think some, some Christians take that on because, you know, they think that they're doing the will of God uh, by becoming this sacrificial, you know, non-reactive thing. And sometimes 
based on the actions of Paul, mm-hmm. you know, he said, hey, wait a minute. Well, certainly the Bible would speak to that in many different places, yeah. right? And I'm thinking even when Jesus is teaching the disciples, he says, you're going to be brought before kings and governors, and you're going to testify, and, and, and don't fear. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words to speak at that time, and, and that's exactly what happened to them, and, and that those things are recorded in Scripture in, in certain places as well. And, and I think that the Bible speaks pretty comprehensively <coughs> about how we are to uh, exercise wisdom at that time and, and, and uh, even being led by the Spirit at certain time in how we are to respond, right? Rosie? Uh, yeah, Bob, you were reading through the Bible in two years, and our reading for today was from Acts 23, when Paul was before the Sanhedrin and before Ananias. And Ananias ordered him to be hit on the mouth. And he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And, you know, and then the other guy said, hey, wait a minute, don't you know you're talking to the high priest? And see, he did. He, he struck out in anger. You know, don't you dare hit me. And then Paul immediately, and I guess this is what I'm citing, the wonderful example of humility. Even Paul messed up, and we react in anger sometimes. And he said, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And so he immediately says, I'm sorry. You know, I, I didn't realize that. So I think that's another good example. Of it that. is. And there would be encouraging <clears throat> to know that even Paul sometimes messed up. <laughs> well, there's plenty of examples like that in Scripture, right? And, and uh, so... Let's move on here. We were talking about humility. And then he says also with gentleness. Okay? Gentleness. Let's talk about gentleness for a minute. Gentleness is a mild disposition. Tender and soft, not strong. Easiness or moderate. Okay? You know that place in Matthew, I think it's 11, 28. And Jesus says, come unto me all ye who are weary. And I will give you rest, right? Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, right? And my yoke, my my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, "Learn from me, because I am what? I am gentle, and I am humble in heart." He says, right? Or meek. There, I'm forgetting which translation you look at there, but. You know, the Bible says Jesus is gentle. You know, here he is, God, very God, walking around on the earth. (laughs) And the holy God walking in the midst of a bunch of sinners who are constantly offending his holiness every step of every day. Right? You get an idea of just how forbearing he is. Right? But the Bible says that Jesus is gentle. What does this mean? What is this gentleness? Anyone? Carlos? Well, good old MacArthur says, byproduct of humbleness. Okay. It's a byproduct <coughs> from that. So it's, it's your whole being is Christian. Mm-hmm. It has to start with certain things that God wants us to have and one of them to start is lowliness or humble. And then from humble, if we're humble, we just can't stop there and say, well, all I'm going to be is humble, and the rest I'm not going to do. Mm-hmm. So it should be a byproduct that follows right into it. And it's in the Beatitudes, you know, mm-hmm. the humble shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. So it's something, there's a promise there too. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Gentle. Not Gentle. Not harsh, okay? self 
self-controlled, exercising restraint, right? You can relate to the problem. Yes, I, I, I can. You know, I, I tend not to be gentle by nature. I've told you this before. And that gentleness is something that I constantly strive to possess because it doesn't seem to be part of my natural character. Although it is within me, and the desire to do it by the Spirit of God is within me, it is difficult at times. And, and uh, so, you know, gentleness like humility is one of those things to be sought after, to be cherished, to, to, to be loved, right? And if you love it and you esteem it worthy, then you will seek to possess it. Amen? It's not harsh. It's restrained. It's, gen- it's gentle. I know in the pastoral epistles it tells a pastor there it says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Right? But of course here in the context of Ephesians 4.2, this is how we are to treat one another in the body of Christ. Gently. Amen? Sophia? I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, no offense, but I don't like your word not strong. I would rather like not harsh, not overbearing, because I think it takes tremendous strength not within ourselves but to to lay down ourselves mm-hmm. and to um, you know like in singing for instance it's much easier to sing a note at full forte than it is to sing something very soft it takes a lot more control within your body to do that mm-hmm. and um, and like with the kids or anything you know it's very easy to just go blah you know you just <laughs> lash out you, you, you do that kind of, you know, strong, forceful thing, it's much harder to lay yourself down, mm-hmm. remain calm, Amen. and be gentle with your kids. <coughs> what you described is very similar to meekness, right? Meekness would be power under restraint, power under control. Scott? Well, let's suffice to say that in order to be gentle, it takes tremendous spiritual strength. But it's not exuded in the way of, of strength or power uh, outwardly, rather but strength or power exuded inwardly in restraint, somewhat like meekness, right? So I would agree that gentleness takes spiritual strength in order to abide within us. This is the same word, is it not? Meekness and gentleness, the word protest in this. Yes, sir. So, in other words, what you're saying is this power under control is this word, in fact. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. And in in other translations, it's actually translated meekness. 
Right. Okay. So, yes, it is very much. So the opposite of that would be that this wouldn't be we wouldn't harbor bitterness. And we we're talking about the negative side of that. We wouldn't be vindictive. Okay. So we could see it from that perspective. Okay. So we wouldn't be violent, sure. Okay. So in that restraint, uh, like Carlos was saying, that's it's, it's almost like a it, well, it definitely is a byproduct of our humility, right? Which would also then lend itself toward not being vindictive or, you know, because that inner quality inside ourself is esteeming those others more highly than itself. And it is not seeking to be vengeful or it's not seeking to, to, to lash out, but rather to restrain and humility making oneself low. So this wouldn't be a characteristic we would create of something the Spirit produces in a new believer, but it Absolutely. would be something we would cultivate in our lives. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. You know, the Bible says that, these things are fruits of the Spirit, yet at the same time commands us to possess them. And, and, and so I agree that all of them, none of them are created by us because we know from understanding the, the, the self-existence of God that nothing that is good that is in the creation comes from anywhere but from God who defines what good is, right? So, so any good thing then is not created by us but is imparted to us by God, right? So, so absolutely, this, you know, it's not something we can... Man- you can't manufacture humility, right? You can't manufacture meekness or gentleness. These are fruits of the indwelling Spirit of God that is within us, amen? Yet, like Joe says, we are commanded to cultivate them, to, to, to by, uh, by our, our will, to restrain ourselves and allow these things to live within us, Right? But we don't do that in human strength, in human power. We do that by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay. Then he says also, patience, and I defined patience here, suffering without complaint, calmly enduring, not easily provoked. Patience. Patience. I see a few heads shaking there. <laughs> Is that one difficult? Suffering without complaint? That's Webster's definition, actually. Not, not that Webster's an authority on spiritual truth. <laughs> but that's a pretty good crack at it, I would say. I think the harder so. one is not easily being provoked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are days when mm-hmm. if my kids even... You know, put their book down in the wrong place. I'm ready to be angry. Mm. You know, so to me that's the hard one sometimes is, you know, on a daily basis I have to, you know, say, God, you know, don't let me be so easily provoked. Amen. But, you know, having the knowledge of God, consider this. When we say it's hard, it's hard not to sin. You know, somebody, I was corrected when I was a young Bible teacher. I was corrected by an older lady. And I was talking about how hard it was to live the Christian life. And she raised her hand, and, she, and I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, let me tell you something. <laughs> she said, the way of the sinner, it is hard. But the yoke and the burden of Christ is easy. Right? Man, that thing just convicted me. <laughs> Man, I went away praying about that and studying about that. And, and I, um, um, <clears throat> I came to understand what she was saying. And I, I want to use this as an example. 
The way of the sinner is hard, friends. What, what, what is harder? To restrain yourself from expressing anger toward your children? Or to love them in, in gentle, nurturing care? And, and I want to say that, yeah, okay, yeah, we have a flesh within us and we want to express anger. And what happens when we do that? Right? We, we bring untold destruction into our lives. What, 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 what is truly hard and what is truly easy? And when you, Ephesian Christians, who've been afforded all these surpassing riches of God's grace in Christ, and all of his uh, uh, surpassing great power toward those of us who believe, right? What's truly harder? I'm going to tell you the problem. The problem is we don't think biblically. We don't think. We don't renew our minds with the knowledge of Christ. Instead, we live, we, at times, I'm sorry, at times when we fail and we live in the flesh, we are allowing the flesh then to dominate our thinking and to dominate our living and to dominate our practice. And because we do that, we, we, we cause untold destruction. Instead of loving and serving and, and caring and nurturing and being humble and gentle and patient and forbearing, when, when really the matter is, we, we have all of the power of God living within us to live this Christian life. But, you know, if we keep feeding the man of the flesh with fleshly things, and we keep allowing him to live and dominate and rule our life, okay, then we're going to reap the said benefits, which, friend, are very hard. They are terribly hard. Amen? And, and um, I understand it's, it's difficult to, to learn how to allow the Spirit of God to dominate your thinking and your practice minute by minute. But I want to tell you, it's far easier to take that route than to take the route of the sinner. Amen? Rick? The struggle is when we try and do something instead of be something. We have to, this has to be right. through Christ, mm-hmm. through abiding in Him. Mm-hmm. And we need to know who we are in Christ. Or Amen. else we're just trying to do something. Amen. And that, that being needs to be that resident character and nature of God, which is in our mind and hearts. And, and this is why I keep trying to emphasize that all of this spiritual war takes place as our minds are renewed with the mind and the thinking of Christ. If you don't know how to behave, you can't do it. Then you just operate out of whatever resource you have, which in most cases is just emotion, just you know, human understanding. That's how the Gentiles live. In the futility of their thinking, right? With darkened understanding due to the ignorance that is in them. They don't know about the, the nature of Christ. They don't know that inside them lives the humble, gentle, patient, forbearing Christ. Amen? So they're ignorant. So they live out of the emotions of their sinful nature. Amen? But we, but we did not learn Christ that way. Amen? Amen? But we were taught to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by the lusts of deceit, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the likeness 
of its creator. Amen? In true righteousness. That's how we learned how to be Christians. That's what we learned when we heard the gospel and it said, repent. Amen? And we embraced the glorious teaching of our Lord. And he said to us, be humble, be gentle, be patient. Suffer with one another without complaint. Bear with one another in forbearing love. Amen? You who are spiritual, seek to restore those who are caught in a sin. Amen? That's what, that's what us Christians are like. Showing forbearance and love. Exercising patience with others. Enduring and bearing with. Putting up with discomfort caused by others. And this motivated by selfless concern. This motivated by humility. Esteeming others more highly than ourselves. Amen? Friends, this is the family of God. And God has commanded us to forbear with one another in love. And that is our rule of faith. Amen? We don't fly off the handle and get angry and proud and harsh and short-tempered with one another. We deal with one another in gentleness and in patience and in forbearing love. Amen? That's who we are to be. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Amen? It's amazing how powerful these words of Scripture are. One little verse in the Scripture, and and we're just sent into utter conviction. <laughs> and at the same time, in, in awesome wonder of, of how beautiful God is and how we desire to be like Him. Amen? Sharon? Oh. <laughs> Why, thank you for forbearing with me there, sister. <laughs> Well, so, so here's where we go in interpreting that doctrine or teaching in that scripture and in regard to the comments that were brought to bear upon that instead of brought out of that text, which were brought to bear upon the text, which we call eisegesis, 
which is to read into the text something that is in our mind rather than to pull out from the text exegesis what's actually in there. But we would want to look to the broader context of Scripture to understand how that the Christian deals with sin within the body of Christ, right? So we would have to look outside to, in order to address that um, argument that was brought to bear upon that Scripture. We would have to look outside of that context in a broader context, to look at that doctrine of how the Christian deals with sin within the body of Christ, which we have very clear teaching about, right? Right, and I would say the supreme example and most clear example of how you deal with sexual immorality within the body of Christ would be there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Where Paul very specifically has them put a man out of the fellowship who is involved in sexual immorality. Right. As a matter of fact, he even says, if anybody calls themselves a Christian, yet is a drunkard or immoral or a swindler, right? With such a man, do not even eat. Right. And 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 of course, he exercises discipline there and and, and tells them to put the man out of the fellowship, and and they do. And what happens? Do you know what happens in that story? Read Second Corinthians chapter two. The man repents. And the church forgives him, right? And he comes back and he's restored. Amen? Because he truly was a Christian. Right? He wasn't somebody parading around as a Christian making a, a, an empty confession or profession. Right? But he was one in whom the Holy Spirit did dwell, evidently, because he responded to that church discipline, repented of his sin, and was restored to fellowship once again. Amen? Can we address that? Okay. All right. So then, he says also here, being diligent to preserve the unity in the bond of peace. I just want to uh, talk about this briefly. Since God has reconciled us unto himself and brought peace, and since Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ, we are to strive to keep that unity which we have already been afforded by the Spirit. Okay, so he doesn't say, I want you all to create a bunch of unity among yourselves. Right. (laughs) Kind of like Joe was saying earlier, we can't we can't create meekness. It's, It's a virtue of God that lives within us. Right. That we are, like he said, to cultivate. Well, here is the same concept with unity. He says in 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 the verse, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. He's talking about a unity that already exists within us, right? We are to be diligent or earnestly striving to keep this unity. We have no need to create unity as we already possess it in Christ. We are to make every effort, therefore, to keep that unity which we already have, and this in the bond of peace. You know, he says there, be diligent. If you have an NIV, they translate that, Make every effort. Okay? It means to strive, to agonize. Okay? For what? To keep the unity that we have. All right? We strive. Even if we have differences, what do we do? We strive to find unity. How do we do that? We go to the Word of God and we study the Word of God and we pray and we forbear with one another until we come to a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Amen? 
And we strive to keep that unity that we possess already, which is a unity that is based on truth. We have unity in the truth of Scripture. We have unity in the truth of Christ. Amen? I mean, if you come in and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian on Sunday, and I'm a Buddhist on Monday, and a Hindu on Tuesday, and a Jew on Saturday, well... (laughs) We don't quite have unity now, do we? Why? Because our unity is founded in Christ, who is the truth. Amen? And, and so uh, it is important to understand that this unity is something that we already possess and that we are making every effort to keep. Since Christ is our peace and he lives in every Christian, then we are to live in that peace with one another which is already ours. We must therefore submit to one another to preserve this unity and peace. Friends, there's got to be some submission on somebody's part. Okay, and like Jerry was saying earlier, of course we have to learn how to exercise wisdom when we have differences. And we've got to look to Scripture as the guide to how we behave in different situations. We've got to look to Scripture to give us definition of what things we ought to divide over and what things ought to bring us together in unity. Right? If I may, just read please, a please do. Uh, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. Absolutely. Gentleness. Gentleness. And he says, have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I think in another place in Timothy, he discusses what those are about genealogies, right? And he, he mentions some other things which are foolish and stupid, Right? Certainly not in regard to the deity of Christ. You get, you get my point? There are some things which are not foolish arguments, which, which we are to earnestly contend for. But even that with gentleness and with respect. In James it says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle with all men. Okay. Okay. Must not strive. Must exercise meekness. Right? Power under restraint. Amen? That's how we deal with one another. Amen? In humility, in gentleness, with patience, forbearing with one another in love. Respect. And respect. Okay? Which would be part of humility, right? <coughs> humility is esteeming others more highly than itself. I was just thinking on the other side of all of that. All of this is... How do we demonstrate a righteous anger that Christ obviously demonstrated in the temple, and not uh, and use it and in, in, in uh, evidencing that or demonstrating that in, in wisdom, in, in the sense of uh, it doesn't flow out of the flesh. And there is a sense there is a righteous anger. Amen. And there's an anger that is an unrighteous anger. Amen. And Paul will even discuss that, won't he? Further in, in yeah. chapter four, he's gonna he's gonna talk about that. I think that's especially important with our kids. You know, how many times do you find yourself as a parent angry over something your kids have done? 
And, and how many times do you find yourself struggling with how to express that anger? Right? You with me? Uh, I think that this becomes very important in our ability to discern between what is righteous anger and, and what is, is anger which is motivated by the flesh. And I think that's something to really be considered and, and to have some wisdom in parenting and understanding how to express that. Because I, I think your kids ought to see a, a righteous indignation over sin. They ought to see that. Why? Because that is the character of God. That's why. But if, 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 if that is not expressed from the spirit and from a humility and from a wisdom and a, and a knowledge of, of the situation at hand, right, then that, that expression of that anger becomes destructive. Amen? And I think we deal with the same thing in marriage. I think there are times in our marriage where we struggle over, or over similar situations. And, and, uh, and I know that none of you are strangers to those struggles. Amen? But deep within us, if the righteousness of God is in us, then there is an indignation over sin. And it, it needs to be learned to be held in meekness, yet expressed at the proper time. Amen? And in the proper way. But, but the general rule is, coming from a humble, patient, meek heart, which is forbearing. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for these holy words. Lord, we, we look at these words and we desire for them to describe our hearts. Lord, we long to be like you. And even as the deer pants, Lord, we long for you. And we want you to change us to be like your glorious Son. And so, Lord, we, we hold these words up and we esteem them very highly. And we tremble, Lord, when we hear them. And we ask you, Lord, to give us humble, contrite, broken hearts that would receive this word which has been implanted in us. And for strength, Lord, to cultivate these virtues in our life and to see them lived out and practiced in our daily life. We thank you, O oh God, for your great mercy to us, your wonderful grace, which is sufficient for everything that we face. And we do thank you for your holy word. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.